Would you take your Bible, please, and turn to Genesis chapter 34. Genesis chapter 34, we continue our study in Genesis for just a few more weeks, actually. We'll uh, be finished and take a, a, a break in uh, just a few chapters, but also because we have some other events that will cause our attention to go elsewhere for a week or two. If you are on remind or if you're just paying attention to where we're in the scripture you know that this will be a little bit of a different kind of a, of a text, a different kind of a sermon. Uh, the passage in the sermon today will deal with uh, some very sensitive issues. Genesis 34 deals with the sexual abuse of Dinah, Jacob's daughter, and the various responses to it. Obviously a story about sexual assault. Uh, makes the modern listener or reader uncomfortable, to say the least. But it is recorded for us in Scripture. There's a reason that God has inserted this into the narrative. So it is for us to read and to hear and to know. We dare not skip over it simply because it makes us feel uncomfortable or because we would rather talk about something a little happier. It's a reality for many people in our world and even in our church. They have faced and continue to deal with difficult situations exactly like this. Statistically, in our world today, one in three women will be sexually abused in their lifetime. And for the United States, it's not even that much, it's not much better, it's one in four. I read this statistic this week that in the United States, every nine seconds, someone is sexually assaulted, just in our country. So in the time that I have spent in an introduction, many people around our country will know the pain of what we're talking about here. So although sexual abuse is not what we might call a dinner table topic, it is serious. And it is very real and prevalent, and one that I believe we will be helped to hear how God addresses. We make just another statement before we go into this. I understand that we have a very mixed audience. We have children among us, and I'm and I tried to send some bit of a warning ahead of you, ahead of time, that what we would be talking about. I rec recognize that a sensitive topic like this requires discretion, so. I will be discerning in my word choices. I don't think that it's something that is completely inappropriate for even our children to at least be aware of because it affects them too. I also recognize that the way that our world is, that there is it's very likely that there are several people within the room this morning that know exactly what we're talking about because you have been a victim of sexual abuse. So I don't intend to bring up old memories, and, and I know that I, I will, just because we're talking about it. 
I don't do that carelessly or lightly. But I do believe that we can bring God's word to bear in every part of our lives, including what is a far too common issue. Genesis 34 deals not so much with preventing uh, such a horrific event, but rather responding to it. So we may, we probably will not cover some of the things you may expect us to, to talk about, because specifically this story talks about the response to what I'm going to call injustice, but primarily it talks about the wrong ways to respond to injustice. My purpose this morning is to show us how our responses to injustice can honor God and should honor God, but an improper response can actually make a bad situation even worse. Now, I understand that no response, no words, no actions that we do can erase or undo the pain, the shame, or the memories that, you, that, that, you, that people will deal with. But I do want us to understand, at the very least, that an improper response will bring greater damage, not only to the victim, but to all those around them. And it's through Dinah's tragic story that we will see how wrong responses sowed seeds of discord and division in Jacob's family and brought greater injustice than what was already committed. But if we pay attention, we also see how God offers hope in an awful situation like this one. So this morning I want us to consider, I want to show how, how we respond to injustice should reveal our Christian distinction and our trust in God. That's our big idea. You'll notice the first four verses of the chapter. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, prince of the land, saw her, he seized her, and lay with her, and humiliated her. Dinah, the daughter of Leah, we've heard once or twice already, but she's really not mentioned a whole lot, and all of a sudden... She is brought to the forefront of the narrative. And it says simply in verse number one that she went out to see the women of the land. It's kind of interesting that the story that is really grounded in this girl, she's only got one action. She went out to see the women of the land. And we need to be very careful then because this is the only action that the Bible tells us of Dinah. So we will not speculate beyond what what it actually says about Dinah. The New English translation of the Bible suggests that this, this phrase, she went out to see, uh, implies that she went out to meet them, to see what they were like. But immediately, we are thrust into the, the, the main emphasis of this story with this man, Shechem. And with four progressively... Uh, violent actions, Dinah's life is forever changed. In verse number two, Shechem saw her, he seized her, he lay with her, he humiliated 
her. This word humiliation is actually the same word that Genesis 15 talks about when Israel will be afflicted by the Egyptians for 400 years. Whatever this is, it is not consensual. This is rape. And to be clear, from the start, as verse 7 tells us, such a thing must not be done. This is not okay. Verse 7 tells us it was an outrageous thing. It is a disgraceful thing. He defiled her. In verses 13 and 27. Verse 31, he treated her like a prostitute. Scripture is clear here and elsewhere that this is not the right behavior. Sex is a gift from God, but is used, misused, abused here for sinful and selfish reasons. Now, if this has ever been you, let me just say right up front, and I'm, I'm very sorry that that happened to you. You didn't deserve it. It shouldn't have happened. You're not to blame. It's not your fault. And we don't want to ignore that. We don't want to minimize that. We don't really know, most of us, what that's like. It's okay for you to be upset, to be angry, scared, confused, numb, all of these different emotions. As a pastor, as your pastor, as a church, we want to help. We don't have the answers that will make it all go away, but we want to help. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 12 that if one member suffers, all suffer together. So we're here to weep with those who weep. And if you need to talk to someone, we're, I'm here. Someone's here. We can... We, we want to help. We want to listen. Find the help that you need. And if there's not a thing that can be done to fix it, we're just here for you. Now, this chapter, as I said, doesn't deal with the prevention of such a situation, but rather the response to it. So that will really what we'll spend our time looking at. The different responses to this situation, all of them are horribly, horribly wrong. In verses 3 and 4, we find Shechem, the doer of the deed. And it says that now all of a sudden his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father, Hamor, saying, get me this girl for my wife. His soul was drawn. The word is love, but it is not Love. He spoke tenderly to her. He wants to marry her. Shechem has it all mixed up, doesn't he? He's getting everything out of order. It's all very perverted and twisted in his mind. God's intent for sex is within the covenant bonds of marriage between a man and a woman who have committed themselves to one another who have joyfully celebrate that covenant and that commitment. And Shechem got it all twisted. One thing we know for sure about Shechem is that he doesn't know what love is. His version of love, contrary to what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 13, was imp impatient, cruel, envious, 
rude, insisting on its own way. And his motive, I believe, as we read this and understand his mindset, was not to make things right, but to continue taking what he wanted from her. He never acknowledges his wrongdoing. He never admits guilt. His professed love, his tender words and the marriage proposal don't erase what he did. They don't excuse what he did. This marriage proposal serves his interests, but has done nothing for Dinah. Then in verse number 6, we see the response of his father, Hamor. Hamor goes to Jacob and asks for Dinah to be given as a wife to Shechem. He says in verse 8, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Still, no admission of wrongdoing. There's no attempt to make things right. They just want to move on from this and ignore it. It was no big deal to them. He suggests, as he goes on into his speech here, intermarriage between the two clans. Give us your daughters and we'll give you ours. Make marriages and dwell with us, he says in verses 9 and 10. Dwell and trade in the land and get property in it. Essentially, he is is saying, let's unite as one people. Let's not be two separate families, two separate kingdoms, nations. Let's unite as one. And in doing so, this is now the third time that outsiders have tried to lure God's people away from God's plan. We saw it with Laban trying to keep Jacob in Haran. We saw it with Esau trying to get him to go down to Edom. And now we see the man in the land keeping him in the land, but trying to erase the identity that Israel has been given by God. Hamor is offering to a very lesser degree what God has already offered. Land and descendants. And then in verse number 12, Shechem adds his final words here only, I'll give you whatever you want. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. I'll pay whatever price. Just give her to me. It's a piece of property. Now the sons of Jacob respond. And I think In our flesh, we enjoy what they have done. But their response is an over-response. In verse number 7, of course, that was the right response. They are outraged. They had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it. They were indignant. They were very angry because Shechem had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with their sister. But verse number 13, they answer deceitfully, which means we need to pay attention to what they're saying, knowing that they're not being true men here. They're not being sincere. They are deceivers like their father. We can't do this because you're not uncircumcised. That's the reason we can't do this. But, you know what, if you agree to be circumcised, then we will agree to the marriages. It's just a thing that we do. Now, it's important for us to understand that what circumcision is the sign of God's covenant with His people. Back in Genesis 17, God commanded Abraham to be circumcised and to circumcise all the males in his household, and anyone who was not was to be put out, to be separated from his people. Circumcision was that, was that mark that showed who were the people of God, who belonged to the covenant community. It distinguished those who worshipped Yahweh, and those who worship idols. 
We will see in just a few verses how they use this good gift, the second good gift that is misused and abused to commit a greater injustice. We'll come back to them in just a moment. In verses 20 through 24, we find the Shechemites, the men of the city of Shechem. Hamor and Shechem uh, quickly agree to the terms that have been laid out by the sons of Jacob, and now Shechemites are agreeing to this. Still, no one from Shechem is admitting any wrongdoing. This is not new. To, this is not wrong for them in their minds. It's, it's still wrong, but they don't see it as wrong. All of the men agree to go along with the circumcision, and their motive here is to make a profit off of it. Not to make it right, but to exploit it and to make it something to their advantage. They're just as deceitful then as Jacob's sons are being. They have their own reasons for doing this. Not to worship Yahweh. Not to be the people of God. But to make a buck. They say in verse 23, Will not their livestock and their property and all their beasts be ours? They want to absorb the people of God into themselves, into their people, and eventually acquire all of Jacob's wealth. And we see... Verse number 25, Simeon and Levi. Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword, took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. Took advantage of vulnerable men who were incapacitated. Three days, couldn't defend themselves. Simeon and Levi took advantage through a good gift to bring destruction and injustice to a city. They took Dinah home, took her out of Shechem's house. They plunder the city, taking everything that is worth anything. And then they take the women and children as captives. This goes way past an eye for an eye. Now, we don't know if this was, it says the sons of Jacob in verse number uh, 25, and this was specifically Simeon and Levi, and then in verse 27, the sons of Jacob, it could have been the other sons as well. That doesn't make that very clear to us. Finally, I want to show you, I want to look at Jacob's response. I wait to him, consider him last, because he begins the story, and he finishes the story, and he's disappeared from the middle of it. In verse number 5, Jacob is silent. He hears the news and he's just silent. He waits for his sons to arrive home. Now, is this wisdom? James uh, 1.19 tells us that every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. So is that what Jacob is doing? Or is there something else going on? Well, we're not told immediately. But when we get to verse number 30, we see the mindset that Jacob has. Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. Jacob is worried about what the nations think of him now. He's worried about what the surrounding nations are going to do to him. It's interesting, if you remember the previous stories, especially from Abraham and Isaac, Jacob does not have a moment 
what, uh, what, some, what uh, uh, teacher has called the sister fib. He does not have a sister fib moment where Jacob denies who his wife is in order to protect himself. He doesn't have that kind of a story, but he does have this. And it's the same idea that he uh, fails to protect the women in his family in order to save his own hide. He failed to protect the event from happening, but he fails to respond to it and to protect whatever honor can be salvaged out of this because he's worried what might happen to him. He says, you brought trouble on me. You you, you ruined me. This is disastrous. Not what happened to Dinah. What might happen to him. He says, you've made me stink. You've made me to be disgusting. To the people of the land. I'm an odious smell now to the people. You've ruined my reputation in the land. It's interesting that Jacob is more worried about what the pagans will think of their son's crime than what the first crime actually started all of this. That doesn't stink. That's not odious. That's not repulsive. Just what you did. And that's all that we're concerned about here. And their sons reply, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? And we don't find an answer. The story ends abruptly and without any kind of resolution to it. Verses 1 of 35 does not continue the story for us. We never find out what's going on. What's going on here? Once again, we have another example in the Old Testament of Moses presenting us a problem and not fixing it right away. Here's something that happened. Here's something that makes you scratch your head and go, who is right here? Who is wrong here? How does it get fixed? And Moses just keeps writing. But he does come back to it. He does fix these things eventually, but not immediately. Jacob's inaction and his son's overreaction are just simply documented as making a horrible situation, even worse. Dinah disappears from the story, but she will live with the pain and the scars and the memory. All the men of a city are dead now, and their women and children are captives, slaves, something they didn't do. And this is the beginning We could even go back a little earlier, I guess. But this marks a beginning of a breakdown in Jacob's family. The end of chapter 40, or in the middle of chapter 49, at the end of the book, and Jacob is blessing all of his sons. He will recall this event to Simeon and Levi and rebuke them for it. In the very next chapter, we will read about Reuben taking his stepmother, Bilhah, the mother of some of his own brothers, and lying with her. And taking her as a wife, if you will. Which can be understood as a sign of his rebellion. And a challenge to his father's authority to to establish his own right as the firstborn son. You think about, uh, it's the same thing that Absalom did in 2 Samuel 16. Disagreed with his father's inaction towards an inappropriate conduct. Towards injustice. His father didn't act, so he acted. What unnecessary grief could have been avoided simply with the proper response? So what are we supposed to do with this then? Why is this here for us? At the time of this writing, 
And Israel is reading Genesis chapter 34. They are entering the same land with the same kind of people living in it. The names and the faces have changed centuries later, but it's still the same kind of wickedness going on. So here's the warning. Don't be like the nations. Don't be like the people of this land. This is how they act. This is what they think like. Don't be like them. In Deuteronomy 7, Moses tells the people, when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. And the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. Then Joshua tells the people at the end of his life, For if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you and make marriages with them so that you associate with them and they with you, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you, but they will be a snare and a trap for you, a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from off this good ground that the Lord your God has given you. The warning is that if you become like them, you will be doing all the things that they do. The people of the land would turn the Israel's hearts away from Yahweh and to false gods, and that's exactly what happened. You read through the Old Testament, we find Israel became like the nations. They failed to heed God's warnings. They served the gods of the people, and they were judged like a pagan nation. But despite their continual failure, despite their stubborn resolve to do as they please and ignore God's warnings, God is merciful and faithful. In fact, the very next chapter from this story, we see that though Jacob has failed to protect, God renews his promise because it was not based on Jacob's faithfulness. It was based on God's faithfulness and throughout Israel's idolatry and throughout the exiles God preserved a remnant and eventually through one of Jacob's unfaithful sons he brought the one true obedient Israelite who would save his people from their sins Genesis 34 serves to progress the problem of sin and God's plan to deal with it with perfect and complete justice. God will deal with sin perfectly and completely. And we can begin to see the gospel through this story as we consider God's response. Because sin must be dealt with. Justice must be met. And it was. Perfect justice was accomplished as Christ suffered and died. And it was proven that it was perfectly satisfied when Christ rose from the dead and ascended to sit at the right hand of the Father. The gospel can be seen here, maybe darkly, but seen here as we look forward to Christ satisfying divine justice for our sins, for these kinds of sins, for even some of the people in this story. Because of Christ, all sinners 
may find forgiveness because of God's perfect justice. When we, when we quote 1 John 1.9, we say that He is faithful to forgive. He is just to forgive. Why is God just to forgive our sins? Because He's already punished it in Christ Jesus for those who are His. And in Christ Jesus, then, we are forgiven. We are renewed. We can find restoration because justice has been done. Now, God's response to the greatest injustice is our basis for responding to injustice. I want to share a couple thoughts with you. Because it is important for Christians to respond to acts of injustice in a proper way. There is a wrong way, and there are right ways. Injustices are going to happen. We cannot prevent them from happening all the time. So how we respond is very important. First of all then, as I said, our response to injustice should reveal our Christian distinction. It should mark us as Christians. Our response should have a distinctly Christian flair to it. The pagan Shemites, Shechemites, didn't acknowledge anything wrong done to Dinah. But we as Christians are not like the nations. We're not like the people of the land. We're different. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 2, 9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This means, very simply, that Christians don't act like pagans. We're not trying to become like them. We're not trying to become one with them. We're not concerned with being accepted by them. The world's acceptance is not our priority. And the world's acceptance of a certain kind of behavior does not determine if it is right or wrong. That is for God to decide. And he has decided and he told us all about it. He wrote a book about it. What God then calls sin, we do too. What God calls an injustice, we will too. Sexual immorality then is wrong in every form. It is not to be practiced by God's people. It's not to be practiced by anybody, but certainly by God's people. And it is not to be tolerated, ignored, swept under the rug. That includes sexual abuse. Sexual assault, sexual abuse is sin. As it tells us in our text, such a thing must not be done. So if you're causing it, you say, would that happen within a church? Yes, it does. You're responsible for some sexual sin such as abuse. It is sin. God will judge it. You must repent. For it is a fearful thing to fall into the hand of a living God who judges completely and perfectly. 
we as a church, we as Christians, we as the people of God must view sin the way God views it. We have to see it in the way that God sees it. And Ephesians tells us we are to take no part in unfruitful works of darkness. Instead, expose them. And exposing the unfruitful work of darkness, exposing sin includes not just not participating in it, but also coming to the aid of those who have been victimized by it and offering our help. Second comment, thought on this, is that our response to injustice should display our trust in God, not our fear of man. Jacob was silent, uncomfortably silent throughout this story. And we find out at the end it was for fear of what pagans might think. He did not want to respond the way he should have because he was afraid of what the pagans might do. And Jacob's lack of response showed a lack of trust in God's protection because we get to the very next chapter and you read on just a little bit and it says that God brought a great fear on all the nations as Israel continued traveling to where they needed to be. God can take care of his people. We must then be more concerned with what God thinks about sin than what man thinks. And when we fail to respond to injustice properly, we leave the door open for further injustice, just like Jacob did with his sons. Now I will say this. We are to seek justice, not vengeance. For that belongs to God. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Romans 12, 19. Man's revenge well, James says the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Tim Mingi says man's revenge does not bring justice and leaves more victims in its wake. We're not going to stop this type of stuff from happening all the time. And, and even the exact ways that we respond to each individual scenario might change. What do you say? What do you do? I think sometimes it's why it's easier for someone who's not dealing with it to just ignore it. Because what do we do? What are we saying? I didn't do that. I didn't cause that. It makes me feel awkward. That doesn't mean that we're excused from having to address the issue and help it. Our response is so important. It must display a Christian worldview, a Christian mindset, and a strong confidence in the perfect justice of God. A person may commit a crime such as this and get away with it for years and years and years. But they will answer for what they have done. They will stand before the judge. He does not miss anything. When, even when people are brought to justice on this earth, doesn't make it go away, does it? When man is allowed to exact his own revenge, it's still never enough. That's why Paul says, don't seek vengeance. 
in, in the very next chapter, in Romans 12, he says, don't seek vengeance. In Romans 13, he begins to teach us what government is all about, essentially, to exact justice. They are God's ministers of justice. They do not bear the sword in vain. They have it to protect the good and punish the evil. We need to have a truly Christian attitude and a strong confidence in the perfect justice of God. Genesis 34 reminds us once again that we live in a very sinful world. The people of the land then and now are wicked. And sometimes God's people don't act much better. But God is merciful and gracious to a bunch of broken, vulnerable, stubborn, disobedient people. God, the righteous judge of all the earth, will do what is right. And we bring honor to him as we live by his commands, as we seek justice for the oppressed. We live not according to what the nations say is okay, what they consider to be right or wrong, but when we live according to what God says is right. And we trust God to accomplish perfect justice in this world. We bring honor to him. Would you pray with me, please? Father, it is a difficult subject to think, think about. And many of us mercifully have no real first-hand experience with what some among us know far too intimately about. So help us, please, to be compassionate, kind, patient, caring with those who are weak and hurting. For those who are the hurting ones. Lord, we believe the gospel is so powerful, so effective, so wide-reaching that it can even bring hope and healing to these people in these types of wounds and, and marks, scars. God, help us, please. Give us understanding. Give us words to even say, for we would try to offer some kind of encouragement. Often we, we stumble to those words, say the wrong thing, Next silly, next stupid. And so we just opt to shut our mouth instead. Lord, if your spirit is within us and guiding us, then we pray that you would give us the appropriate things to say or do. And then do the thing that we cannot do. Minister to the hearts of those who are your children, whom you love, whom for whom you have died, to whom you have given your Holy Spirit, to make up the body of Christ, to be.
beautiful bride who is becoming sanctified and will stand before you one day glorious. Thankful that we could be a part of it. We're thankful that people from all kinds of backgrounds and all kinds of stories can be a part of it. The glory it brings to your name. Thank you for what you're doing. Continue to work in our hearts, please. We pray for Jesus' sake. His name. Amen. This time.